0: It's your boy, and today is Sunday, December 10th. We are just on the cusp of my last week of school, and you know what? Actually, in this moment, I'm feeling pretty good. I think uh, uh, last time we talked, I don't know where I was exactly, but I I couldn't have been done with my thesis yet, but uh, I finished the second major portion, and... As of today, the only thing I had left to write was the introduction and the conclusion, and I think I finished the introduction, so it just kind of got to wrap things up in a couple pages, which is really just recapitulating the stuff that I've already said, and so that feels good, Um, and I had another looming paper for a Buddhism in China class, which is essentially written. Uh, It's a little long. It's a little overlong, Um, but actually, you know, it feels weird. I I don't know if I talked about this on the last time, but, you know, there's a way in which like when you have to write papers, you're kind of like a fish who grows to the size of its bowl, which is when you're in college and you're first starting out and you're writing papers or even in high school. I mean, I can't think if I, sorry, I'm drinking water here and stifling burps at the same time, but I don't know what the longest paper I wrote in high school was, but it was probably like, I don't know, five, six, seven pages or something like that. And when you're first writing those papers, that feels very long. And then when you're in college, I feel like most of your papers are usually between five to 10 pages or something like that. And, um, you know, I don't know. I've had a couple stretching things where I've had to write longer papers. I had a final paper for this like comparative literature class where I think the paper needed to be like 25 pages or something like that. And I think up until writing the thesis, that was the longest paper I had written or at least turned in. And, um, you know, but it's kind of like, I'm trying to think. There's got to be a good thing to compare it to. I don't know if it's like running or something. I don't know what to compare it to. But it's just basically, you know, when you kind of set out to do something, even if it's twice or three times as long as anything you've ever done before, I feel like you just kind of acclimate. And uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't, of course, it takes longer and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like there's a way in which we kind of just like calibrate our sense of time and expectations or whatever it is so that it's it's usually not as difficult as we think it's going to be um you know yeah anyway so i don't know what i mean by that except to say um that the paper's almost done and i was talking about this buddhism in china paper that sort of got me off track talking about something else um yeah Anyway, I'm not thrilled with how this is starting. <laughs> I, I was literally just like finishing up on this thesis and thinking I just felt really primed to have this conversation. So um, I think the thing that I really have on my mind is I've been watching a lot of movies. Like every night I'll watch a single movie. And one of the movies I rewatched was Tenet, which is a Christopher Nolan film, which I remember when it first, well, I didn't see it when it came out in theaters, but when it was, the first time I saw it was right when it came out. On streaming services. I eagerly anticipated it. And I remember like renting it or something on Amazon Prime. And within 48 hours, I watched it three times. I watched it like the night I rented it. I watched it like the next morning. Uh, And then I watched it like that night. And it was one of those movies where like the the when I was first watching it, I was like, oh, this is a very cool movie stylistically. But even within the first 10 minutes, I was like, I don't really... Like, I I could follow the action taking place, but I didn't know what was going on. Like, I didn't understand narratively what was happening. And every 15 minutes, I just kind of checked in with myself and was like, I still don't know what's going on. And even like an hour, an hour and 30 minutes into the movie, I just had no fucking idea really what was going on. Like, I would start to think I was understanding. And then once the whole temporal... Shit starts to happen. I literally didn't understand entire sequences of what I was watching. Like, there's a way in which, like, there's, you know, I'm assuming you've seen the movie. You start to think you understand the mechanics of what's going on, you know, but then there's like that car chase sequence where you literally have cars like going forward and backward in time and interacting somehow. And it just all starts to like congeal in your brain and then there's the sequence where there's like you know there's the red and the blue room that are each side of the I don't know what they call them the whatever that mechanism they use to kind of go back and forward in time where you know you have people who are conversing while one of them is moving forward in time while the other one's in reverse and someone gets shot in reverse and you're just like what the fuck is going on and then the fight the, the most mind nubbingly confusing piece of film that I've ever seen is that final battle where they start switching back and forth? You know because before you were seeing something through one perspective, and then you would you know re experience it through the lens of the people who were going the other direction but that was also happening like chronologically with the film by the way if you're listening to this and you're confused you're we're on the same page it's not like i understand something you don't we're on the same page but then in that final battle then in this in the telling of events it starts to switch back and forward in time and you have no idea what's going on and it's one of those things where it's like it's not bad or confusing in the way like movies that are just not smart and dumb or pretentious and really don't have any substance they're just trying to confuse you for the sake of seeming intelligent or something like that it's not frustrating as a viewer in that sense i'm actually convinced that it makes perfect sense and i'm sure you could probably google it and find a diagram where somebody actually explains everything that's happening and you know it, You know, when I watch that movie, the reason I watch it so many times, I've probably seen it like five or six times, is because it's a legitimately good movie. Like, you can watch it and enjoy the craft of filmmaking. But it's also just like when I watch it, it's kind of a meditation on this, you know, axiom that you hear sometimes from artists, which is like, consider your audience. And I'm not really sure, you know, I mean, I can kind of take that or leave it sometimes because, on the one hand, when I'm watching a movie like Tenet, I go, Wow, this is such a great movie, but for the fact, I feel like it was written without my understanding in mind. And as I'm going in this, I realize that this is a theme I've reiterated over and over again. so I won't I won't I won't hit this uh, too hard or stay on this for too long, I hope. But I always compare Tenet to Inception, which is a movie that works very hard to make sure that you understand the mechanic of what is about to unfold. Because it's about to do something very complex, right? It's about to be a dream within a dream. And it wants to make sure that you really understand. And in fact, the whole Elliot Page character is injected into that movie to act, I mean, this is how I see it, is injected into that movie to act as the audience member. And you see this sometimes in films. They'll insert some, you know, it's usually like an intern or someone new to the team or something. someone who has a lot of questions so that, in a plausible narrative way, the writers can inject someone who can ask the type of questions the audience will have in a way that narratively makes sense so that they can convey information. So if you notice in the exposition of Inception, there's a lot of Leonardo DiCaprio's character and other people explaining things to Elliot Page's character. Um, Now, when you rewatch Inception, the movie suffers a little bit from that because you realize so much of the dialogue is... Expository. Um, but still, it serves the movie because you really need to know what's going on. And when you watch that movie, you're completely caught up. I don't I mean, I, I really can't think of a moment where you're watching that movie where unless you're really not paying attention, that what is actually happening is over your head. It's actually fun because you're in on what's going on. Now, tenant and actually I maybe I've talked about this in the context of Interstellar as well because I did rewatch that. When I was in Taiwan I saw Oppenheimer which was Christopher Nolan's latest movie, but I rewatched Interstellar with the host family that I was staying with for a couple of weeks. And that's a movie that although it like is very emotional at the end it, it, it like has a nice catharsis and I think it ends up in a good place. It's a very frustrating movie to watch because on the other hand that movie is so like kind of like bad poetry and it's very at least at least to me it very much seems like nolan's aspirational science fiction film like i heard one time i heard a director say one time that every director secretly wants to create a musical at some point in their career that there's just something about doing a good musical that i think is somehow demonstrative of like a good director or something like that and i think there's a, a tourist uh desire to create a science fiction film. Um I feel like is it Steven, Steven Soderbergh did it very well with Solaris it is a movie that stands out in my mind as like a very good science fiction film from a modern director. Um, of course but everyone's aspiring to be Kubrick's 2001 which we talked about. Um a bad example, although it's not a, it's not really a bad movie but it is clearly a very overt example for a uh, 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 asp- aspiring a tourist To create a science fiction film is ours. Is it ours? Ad Astra. That's it. Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt movie. Go ahead and watch that. And it's basically Heart of Darkness (laughs) or Apocalypse Now, but in space. Um, But uh, Interstellar is a movie that suffers from almost too much exposition with kind of the kind of bad poetry or something, the sort of. Mm, hollow profundity that Christopher Nolan movies have sometimes. Uh, but then Tenet is, the, and I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that that movie was, I don't know if it was made during the pandemic, but it was released during the pandemic. But when you watch that movie, there's just something kind of confused about its exposition, where once you've seen it a couple times, you're kind of filling in blanks that just aren't really there. But even after seeing the movie five or six times, I'm still not entirely convinced I know how the sequence in the beginning relates to the rest of the movie. Um, there's these kind of seminal moments that just don't really make sense. Like so much of the movie hinges on the fact that Sater, who's the uh, Kenneth Branagh's character, the villain, he holds some type of leverage over his wife, keeps her in this kind of quasi hostage situation that has something to do with the fact that like he bought a forged painting off of her that she knew was a forgery and so by virtue of the fact that he blew like X millions of dollars on this painting, he's like holding the fact that he's not pressing charges against her. And it just seems like completely unrealistic. Like one, why wouldn't he either kill her or it, it, it's just a very kind of confused way to kind of do things. And then the other component is like you have all this like crazy temporal time stuff that you know, There's so many iterations of this stuff. It works on so many levels that you just think, this could have been made so much simpler. The conceit of the movie is very cool, that you can have people going forward and backward in time, and there's so many great set pieces in that movie that display it so well. Um, again, maybe I'll just assume that you've seen it, but there's a moment where the main character fights themselves without realizing it. Right? You see this one fight, with someone who's like wearing a mask. And then later in the film, there's this reveal that they're the same person. Now that is very, very cool. And if the movie had restricted itself to like maybe half a dozen of those types of moments, which it has, it would have been like very fulfilling. And yet there's just like, the movie is just oversaturated with plot points. And it's actually a bit like some of the dark Knight movies, which is when you watch, um, the dark Knight, the second one with Heath Ledger, like, the Two-Face villain feels completely shoehorned into that movie. Like, there's just no reason for that person to be there. You know, the movie's kind of already overlong. And um, anyway, I'll get off Christopher Nolan because we've talked about it so much. But yeah, there's just something there about, like, you know, I'm not all, all in on the idea of, like, consider your audience. And I would have been, I think, previously. But I've also kind of rethought about that. You know, sometimes, you know, artistic statements can just be that and I think it actually came like I think part of this was like came to my mind when I was thinking about the video game creator Jonathan Blow who was talking about Gravity's Rainbow um, which is a novel by Pynchon which I absolutely detest or when I read it like many years ago it was just a, a hateful reading experience but it was one of the things that you kind of have to read and the reason that book sticks in my mind is because uh i wrote this review there's a sort of review website called goodreads and i had this I, I used to kind of track what i was reading and write these kind of what i thought were thoughtful reviews of what i was reading and i only did it for a couple of years so i don't know how many reviews are on there but the one that seems to stand i did this review of gravity's rainbow which you know all the time i still get these email notifications even though i haven't looked at that website in like eight years i still get these notifications that like people are liking it or commenting on the re- you know people respond to my review or whatever and i don't read it But what I do remember is I wrote this kind of snarky dismissal of the book where I called it like a hateful reading experience. And the reason we don't hear from Pynchon is because, you know, he he really has nothing to say. And if we gave him a microphone in 15 minutes, he'd be found out. And there's nothing in Gravity's Rainbow that doesn't approximate, you know, uh, what anybody with a library card in 20 years, which was like the distance between his last book. It was either The Crying of Lot 49 or... Maybe something else, like you know, someone who had a library card in twenty years to write a novel, like that is what Gravity's Rainbow would be. Um, And why am I talking about that? Oh, uh, Jonathan Blow kind of made this comment about that book, which is you know there are some books that just literally. I mean, Gravity's Rainbow is about rockets, in uh, but he said that that you know the book itself is like a rocket, and that it takes off, and that the author is not very invested in whether the audience is keeping up or not. And I thought, oh, that's a very interesting perspective actually that I hadn't considered. And it, that that observation about the book kind of came at the right time because I think it was around that time that I was introduced to the concept of the encyclopedic novel. And it, the encyclopedic novel—I forget, forget the guy's name. It starts with an M. But you know, he has taxonomized this kind of, you know, uh, uh, sort of a category of books that sort of begins with Dante's Divine Comedy and there's like Ulysses and there's a bunch of others but they are these encyclopedic novels that all have these distinguishing characteristics of which uh, Pynchon's Gravity is Rainbows at least at the time of the writing of this essay was like the most recent example of this and it kind of made me reconsider that and um so I guess what I'm saying is is that I kind of – on the one hand, I kind of hold this idea that, yeah, maybe there is a way in which some art uh, is just a statement and people can kind of chew over it or get something out of it. Um, maybe the extreme – and like in a cinematic version, the extreme is like Matthew Barney's *Cremaster Master Cycle. Uh, Matthew Barney is a visual artist whose medium – frequently his medium happens to be film. And so a lot of times people will sit down and watch his movies and kind of critique them like normal films or normative films. But at the end of the day, they're not doing what other movies do. Uh, they're visual art pieces. The medium, they, you know, they're captured on a camera, but they can't really be evaluated like narrative films. Um, now, obviously, Christopher Nolan is not that. We're talking about the director of uh, the Batman trilogy, and uh, and uh, so clearly he's making music for, for popular consumption. Um, and so, yeah, I just think... For me, there's just, you know, especially in, the, especially in the work of an artist that I really enjoy and take a lot of inspiration from, there's just nothing worse than, and also maybe this is predicated on the fact that you kind of assess yourself to be a relatively intelligent person and a relatively patient person also, is there's nothing worse than like sitting in front of a piece of art or a, or a movie and just being like confused, like I've heard people say about comedy, which is like you can be a referent. you can say whatever you want, but from a technical standpoint, a joke cannot be confusing. It's impossible. A joke has to be understood. If a, because if you tell a punchline and somebody's first reaction is what, that's like the worst thing in the goddamn world because then you have to explain it, and explication is like antithetical to comedy. Now, you know. Not all movies are comedies, so they can do a lot of different things. Like sometimes, as a creator, you sacrifice certain things to do something else. Like maybe in interest or in Inception, it's like, oh, I will sacrifice entertainment value for the sake of uh, exposition or for the sake of explanation. So yes, maybe for this, you know, five minutes, I'll be less entertaining, but it's in the service of somebody understanding, which is going to be very important for this scene that's about to happen so you make those types of concessions but on some but yeah there's something about confusion you know like you can be as high-minded or as intellectual or whatever but what you can't be is confusing and maybe that's just something that you know i, I can't sort of prescribe it for everybody but it seems to be something that i value um and for some reason, that felt like a natural segue, which I don't understand anymore. But I watched another movie recently, which maybe, maybe, yeah, there's something about the, I I watched this movie on Netflix, it's called Leave the World Behind. And I was kind of intrigued, because it had Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke, and it was, it looked like this kind of a tourist kind of film, and it just seemed like a very weird role, you know, when you're on Netflix, and you sort of mouse hover over a movie or something, you'll get the trailer starting to go. And immediately I was kind of intrigued visually. I could tell that this was kind of an art house kind of movie. And it was just very strange to see Julia Roberts kind of moving in that type of environment. And uh, so I didn't look into anything about the plot, which is kind of my favorite way to watch a movie. I just sort of decide to watch it and uh, let the film kind of tell the story rather than watch the trailer or read reviews. But I admit I did do that thing. Excuse me, sorry. I'm, I really am like, I don't know if I drank water too fast or what, but um, I did do that thing where I looked at the score on Rotten Tomatoes beforehand just to kind of, you know, I, I admit I'm also like, we live in this world where there's just endless variety or a selection of movies that you could watch. And uh, so sometimes I do kind of let the kind of uh, Rotten Tomatoes or the tomato meter kind of... You know, it never decides for me, clearly, as this will demonstrate. But it just to kind of give me a sense of if I'm barking up the right tree or something. And I was looking at this movie, and although it was, uh, I mean, usually what spells danger for me is a movie that critics love but audiences hate. And this movie has like a 58% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. But, uh, you know, maybe like, it's it's sort of, it's kind of sad, this sort of cert- certified fresh Indication that movies have is kind of bullshit. You know, it's like, uh, it's, I think it's like, uh, it's like school. It's like a passing grade or something. It's like if you get a 73%, it's still like certified fresh or whatever. I don't know. But um, I always find typically that critics t- tend to love movies that I think are awful. But I, surprisingly, you know, I, maybe people think I'm like a misanthrope or something, but I find in general the audience score is pretty accurate because if you take a wide enough swath of the public, even though there's like, you know, sort of minority opinions about things, generally people get it right. And it's actually interesting to hear myself say that because in my political science class, we've actually observed that. You know, we think we're living in this time of polarized politics where it's actually not, politics itself is not getting more polarized. But there is this, you know, I can't really describe the image to you, but when you look at the data, it's not that, you know, it, it, the politics still falls along the same bell curve but the center has diminished. So what you lack is this sort of, uh, sort of, calibrating voice of centrality, which is diminished. And it doesn't mean that people have gone to the far ends of the cont- of the polar opposites. It's just that we've become slightly more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorted in our politics. You're, you know, may I think like according to the data, like in the 70s, you would find people who were liberals who had some conservative values. And you would find some conservatives who had a lot of liberal values. And there was just in the in that center region, there was just much more crossover. And now people are just more assorted. It doesn't mean that like, you know, our views entirely are sort of polarized, but you know, it's just like that center has sort of diminished. The the demarcation between liberal and conservative has been come more defined. And why the fuck am I talking about that? Um, maybe I'm talking about audiences, or maybe I was talking about <laughs> I was talking about Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know what I was talking about. But the point is, I was watching this movie, and I sort of went into it with my arms folded, which actually is the best way to go into a movie. Because conversely, it's like if I'm going into tenet thinking, hoping, hoping for the kind of cathartic, kind of great experience that you get from Christopher Nolan. Like I think Dunkirk is maybe his most underrated movie of all time. But I will say I went into that movie kind of hearing that it was not very good. And I was I absolutely loved it from the beginning to the end. I just absolutely loved it. And I had a similar thing with this movie Leave the World Behind, which is I was like, well, audiences don't like it, so the critics love it, which I, I don't really go in for. Because if you look at some of the stuff that they celebrate and you watch it, it's just absolute dog shit. Um, And it usually has to do with whatever the identity politics of the movie is. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but I just think it's observably true. I mean, you know, critics kind of, or many film critics seem to stake their, uh, you know, career, almost like they're voting politicians, interestingly. Like, you know it, it they're uh, the movies that they extol or the movies that they like is basically they're creating a record that can be wielded against them at some point, <laughs> so a lot of times you know movies just kind of skate by because they are about the quote right political view or the right social view or something like that and actually that's where this movie Leave the World Behind really shines because it's this kind of apocalyptic film with uh Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke Kevin Bacon has a great um uh you know, quasi cameo appearance in the movie. And um there's really only a couple moments in the movie. There's really and they're, they they kind of center around Julia Roberts and it's not her fault, it's just the writing that kind of are a little disingenuous. There's kind of an establishing moment where she kind of announces her dislike for people that feels a little untrue. And then there's this kind of like kind of forced cathartic moment kind of later in the movie where she kind of announces what the movie is about, you know? Like, you find this in a... There's this sort of thing I was kind of laughing about, which is, like, you know, I feel like the monologue is kind of a holdover from the past. Like, I'm not really sure if our current, like, cinematic or artistic climate is, like, really amenable to the monologue. Because a monologue really, in bright, shining strobe lights, signals to the audience, like, meaningful dialogue, meaningful dialogue. And the weird part is, like, I don't know that... A lot of screenwriters have figured out how to get into the monologue. They all kind of start the same way. Like, for some reason, I always think of... For me, the, a perfect example is the movie The Town with Ben Affleck, which is this bank heist movie, which is not great, but people seem to like it for some reason. It's kind of a poor man's heat, if you ask me. I don't remember what the subject of the monologue is, but it's so, it's so quintessentially... Uh, stylistic of bad monologues which is like you know he's kind of the tortured dude and he has his romantic interest and she's like kind of endeared to him but of course she has like so there's some red flags that kind of need to be explored and like all these kind of shitty movies they always have these kind of tortured characters but they have to explain their red flags as like a remnant of their trauma you know and it, it kind of tries to do both things at once which is like you know, acknowledge like the underlying mental health issues that kind of contribute to this type of stuff. But they also kind of romanticize, um, at the same time they're romanticizing the tortured aspect of it as well, which is really like a self-actualized person who's looking for a good romantic partner would not be interested in this, in this person whatsoever. But there's a way in which like trying to talk about the contributing factors to their trauma or their mental health issues yeah, in a way, it actually kind of perpetuates like the savior syndrome of the female. I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't know how to word that exactly, but it's just they I feel like they're trying to do the right thing, and yet it kind of is still quote problematic, as the kids say. But these monologues kind of always start with like, like some kind of sensory recollection. Like, there's like a moment of silence, and the person will say something like, "The sound," and the other character goes, "What?" the last thing I remember is the sound of the door closing as she left. You know, and he tells this sort of story about like his mother leaving or something like that, but they all kind of start in the same kind of pensive way. Like, uh, uh, it was the smell that sticks with me. What do you mean? The smell of the cigarettes that my dad used to put out on my flesh. And then it goes into this long monologue about their dad chaining him to a radiator or something like that. And the day they fought back, like that's, <laughs> that's usually what these monologues are. <clears throat> he used to hit my mom, and then one day I wouldn't take it anymore, so I sit with the old man, and that's when I shot him. That's why I went away to prison for 15 years. So people think I'm this hardened criminal, and I had a bad reputation in this small town, but really I was defending my mom. It's always that kind of story, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, I'm sure you do. Um, so there's like a, there's like two moments like that in this movie, but otherwise... I was watching this movie that is kind of a post-apocalyptic, it's, it's a, a, an apocalyptic movie and you think, how many more of these fucking movies are people going to make? And there's actually a moment where you, at least for me anyway, it was very clear the allegory that was happening here. I'll, 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 first of all, I'll say stop this and watch the movie. Okay, but I, I want to talk about this, okay? So I'm there's going to be some spoilers here. You should just watch the movie and let it unfold because that's the purest way to watch it. But it's basically about Julia Roberts and her husband, and they wake up one day in New York City, and she has announced, hey, I got this Airbnb for us outside of the city, and guess what? We're fucking going right now. We're getting away because society sucks. It's predicated on this thing of like, ah, oh, people are horrible. We want to get away from them. So they end up staying at this beautiful Airbnb. It's like a mansion, and there's like a pool, and they bring their two kids, And, you know, from the very beginning, though, you see that there's these kind of technology disturbances that are happening. And as they're kind of gathering things, they're noticing, oh, there's some punctuation in the Wi-Fi and in in the GPS and that sort of stuff. But everything seems to be going okay. Meanwhile, Julia Roberts happens to see Kevin Bacon, which is always fucking weird. (laughs) Like, they do this thing with cameos sometimes where it's like they have someone sort of appear. And it would be much more interesting from a creative or artistic standpoint to just kind of let that happen and only later have it be meaningful and kind of revelatory. But if you're just watching a movie and Kevin Bacon shows up, you're like, "Hey, where the f-, you're you're literally watching the movie thinking, "Hey, we were introduced to Kevin Bacon and haven't seen him for 45 minutes. Like, what the fuck? Like, he's got to show up." So there's a there's at least a part of your brain that's burning calories like waiting for Kevin Bacon to show up again. Um that like they should have just chosen like a competent no-name actor. Um but um, and for some reason, that's reminding me of Kevin Spacey in Seven, which is the, 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 the reverse of that, which is also very cool sometimes, is you have a very major character that only appears at the very end of the film, or you do that thing that Scream did, which is if you go back and watch the trailers for Scream when that movie came out in like, I don't know, 99 or I don't even think it was 2000. It may have been like 97 or whatever. When that movie came out, all of the trailers and promotional materials really featured Drew Barrymore. You know, and it was. I think it was kind of pitched as like a campy kind of. Because I think her career was kind of like not really doing a lot at that time, as a kind of return to the career of Drew Barrymore, and it really set up audiences who saw that movie in theaters because she gets killed in the first five minutes, and you're like, oh my god! It really sets up this expectation, like, oh, this fucking movie's gonna do anything, right? Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's Kevin. Kevin Bacon sort of shows up, but then there's this moment where, and I forget the actor's name. He's in True Detective. As soon as you see him, you recognize him. But he's a black actor. And so there, I think well, there, maybe their second night there or something like that. Things are getting a little more weird technologically. And all of a sudden there's a knock on their door and it's this actor and his daughter. And of course, Julia Roberts is a little taken back thinking uh, presumably it's because she's prejudiced that there's these two black people standing on their doorstep, which is interesting that I worded it that way, standing on the doorstep of the house that they're in, uh, not their house, uh, in the middle of the night and this person saying, oh, this is my house. We were in the city, and obviously there's this weird shit going on, and uh, we thought it would be safe to come back here. And so all of a sudden, this weird dynamic plays out where you have Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke who have technically paid to stay there, and yet the by virtue of the fact that there's this kind of catastrophe that's seeming to unfold, the owners of the house have returned and are kind of living like guests in their own house. Now, there is a moment where it sort of clicked for me as I'm watching this, where I go, well, of course this is an allegory um you know, for the current state of living in social America, which is you have white people who are occupying a legitimately nice space, which they technically, uh, maybe even if they paid for it, quote, quote, on some level, they're basically occupying someone else's territory. And the people who are indigenous to that territory are having to live like guests within that community. And in a way, when shit starts to hit the fan, the white people are going to sort of leverage the fact that, hey, I paid for this, or they have certain... Sort of not sort of certain tangible justification for saying why they deserve to be there, but it does. But you know, but does that really come at the cost of the people who actually live there? And when times get desperate, what is everybody going to do? And what was good about that movie is even there's this like kind of obvious kind of conceit. The movie is done so well, and I think very subtly that it never gets like uh, moralizing. It never gets polemical. And the craziest fucking thing is I'm watching this actually I'd forgotten about this. When you're watching the op- opening credits, you realize the movie was executive produced by Barack and Moshe- Barack and Michelle Obama, which is fucking crazy. I should really look into that because I had forgotten about that, but I remember that from the opening sequence and thinking this is a very politically charged movie. It's just bizarre that a former president and first lady like were producers on this film. I just don't know how that how that fucking happens. Um But the movie does a very good job of, like, not really taking a side, but just presenting, like, given, like, this natural disaster, this is just how people behave. And it does a very good job of making you kind of completely sympathetic and understanding of every single person's perspective, you know? Like, Get Out is a great movie. I think that's probably of the kind of topical modern films that kind of do the kind of genre thing that I think a lot of people have done it trying to model themselves after Get Out. But they do the kind of topical commentary, but in a kind of uh, as a genre experiment. Get Out did it very, very well. And yet, it is completely one-sided. I mean, the, the entire theme of the movie is like white people are evil, right? And so people get to like kind of smile and nod their head and feel good about that. Now, that's present in this movie, but it's, but it's present to the extent that everybody else is just trying to survive. And the only other false moment in the movie is there is this great scene where Ethan Hawke's son gets bit by like a a, a, a tick or something and he has like Lyme disease, his like teeth are falling out. <sighs> and the reason Kevin Bacon had sort of appeared earlier is as they first come to town, Julia Roberts does some grocery shopping and she finds Kevin Bacon like packing his car full of supplies. And it's clear that he's this kind of like, conservative prepper type of dude. Now, I don't really remember how this guy kind of got tipped off to things. But basically, it just is the case that now that the world has sort of collapsed, he's one of the few people that the neighbors can kind of imagine uh, has resources or something like that. And so they go to him seeking some medication. And of course, there's this fraught standoff where Kevin Bacon is the kind of doomsday prepper, conservative dude who like is not going to share his resources. He's the guy who's like the kind of guy that would like hoard toilet paper in the time of COVID or something like that, uh, but times 10. And uh, the the entire time that sequence plays out, it's very, very good, very, very believable. And you're actually sympathetic to this guy in some way because you're watching it thinking, yeah, dude, when shit hits the fan, you know, he's not like a comic book villain. It's just like this guy prepared – he sees like the you know it's almost like the what's the uh what's the children's story where the the sort of one of the farm animals goes around trying to bake a cake but nobody's going to help them and then when the cake was baked everybody wanted to have a piece it, you know it, it was kind of like that which is like you know he he's just not 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 a comic book villain and um so they come to some type of compromise but it was like the filmmakers had to just kind of it, it just Again, it just goes how subtle this stuff is, but they just kind of add, and it feels like a completely addendum to this scene that should have been cut, honestly, where the guy just makes like a final kind of ignorant racist statement to kind of, I don't know if a producer or maybe even the writer themselves just like had to drive home the fact that like we shouldn't be this guy, which I thought really kind of like. It kind of shattered what the film I thought was doing very well, which is like not taking a moral position as much as just presenting. This is just how people are. Um, but he, it was like he he said some type of thing where he conjectured. He's like, "Oh, if you want to know what's really going on, it's the Koreans or the Chinese." Like he can't distinguish between Korean and Chinese, which is somehow indicative of his ignorance. And kind of, and then he's I forget what else he says, but he says something that makes him seem like a QAnon kind of conspiracy theorist or something like that. And I thought, Ugh, just a couple moments in this movie where they kind of, I think, kind of screw the pooch a little bit. But the point of all that, I think what I'm trying to say is, uh, I won't tell you the rest of the stuff that happens. I guess I've already spoiled it enough. <clears throat> but it's one of the few times I remember watching a movie where the entire time I'm thinking, there's just all these different scenes where I'm just, you know, I'm kind of waiting for the movie to fuck up. And it just keeps getting better and better. And there's so many moments where I was just like, you know, whether it was a certain shot or a creative choice that the movie did where I was just like, oh my God, this movie is the shit. Like completely randomly, maybe not randomly is not the right word for it, but this is just phenomenal moment where you're watching the movie and it it just like shows this beautiful shot of the earth with like the sun setting behind it and the camera pans out to the surface of the moon where there's like the American flag on it. And I was just like, Oh my fucking god that's brilliant. You know? It's like just one of these creative flourishes that like for me I was remember that watching the movie The Kindergarten Teacher. Not uh the new version with uh is it Maggie Gyllenhaal? I haven't seen that version. And the only reason I haven't seen it is cuz I've seen the original and it's so good. I don't want to like um um I yeah, I I don't want to like I just enjoy that movie. There's so many things I like about that movie. I just don't want I don't want to besmirch it or something like that. But I had a similar moment when I was watching that movie for the first time, and in the opening sequence, the opening shot of the film is just a guy watching TV and the camera's behind his head, and at some point, the guy like turns around to talk to someone, and his elbow hits the camera, and I don't know if it's planned or what, but it's, it's, it's very overt, it's clear, and he just like continues the scene as if nothing's happened. And I just, I, I literally just slammed my hand down on my keyboard on the space button and paused the movie, and was like, "That's one of the coolest fucking things I've ever seen in a movie." And as you watch that movie, there's just these interesting moments that are completely unaddressed, and they're not like uh, breaking the fourth wall, where like you know, like uh, in Funny Games, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but like the villains like turn to the camera and start addressing it, and they're kind of eye roll inducing. Like, a kid will just, like, run up and, like, scream into the camera, you know, It's because it takes place at, like, a kindergarten. The kids are kind of playing. One of them will just, like, run up and, like, grab the camera and scream into it and just keep playing. And it's just these kind of inspired moments of, like, breaking the fourth wall. And there's something about that shot. There's a couple other kind of shots of the globe, so it's not completely divorced from whatever's happening in the movie. But you just think that's just a fucking crazy shot to 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 cut to. But it just speaks volumes. And it's the type of thing that I, I, you know, when I look at the poor ratings, I I wonder if these are the types of things that other people hate. But there's just so many moments that I was like, this movie's fucking brilliant. And normally when you're watching a movie, especially streaming, because maybe you bump the mouse or you can pause it to go to the restroom, you kind of have a sense of where you are in the movie. You're like, oh, there's 20 minutes left. There's 15 minutes left. Things are going to be wrapping up here. I had no idea the movie was about to end. I mean, you cert- it's certainly building to something. But it has one of the best endings to a movie I've ever seen. It's very frustrating, and of course, you you know, it's one of these kind of uh, "No Country for Old Men" kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, a blackout kind of abrupt endings, or like the ending of The Sopranos or something like that. But it was just uh, absolutely brilliant. I was watching it, and it was such a great moment of like returning to this theme that's kind of been coming up in the movie. It's relating to the show Friends. And all of a sudden, the camera just fucking cuts to black on the credits roll, and I just jumped out of my chair and I went, God damn, that movie was great. God damn, that movie was the shit. And I liked it even more that people didn't like it. Because my favorite thing in the world is to stumble on something, one that other people seem to not like, and I genuinely like it. I mean, I consider myself a contrarian, but that just seems to be the case. I don't I don't think or on some I I don't have access. If there is a part of my brain that's just like looking for things that people don't like, I don't have access to that part of my brain. But it just I just go it, it feels like I have a secret, you know what I'm saying? And it's just wild to me that this movie's on Netflix and although the critics seem to like it, and I happen to agree with them this time audiences don't like it and I just felt like god damn it that's awesome because then I it's like I have it, in a way it almost maybe you draw closer to even the actors or the filmmaker or something like this like like I hope Julia Roberts and I hope Ethan Hawke and I hope the other people in that film know that they made a good movie and I don't know maybe like actors or even authors sometimes have this thing where like the thing that they get celebrated for is not their the, their favorite thing that they've done I know I heard, I saw an interview one time with uh, Elijah Wood, and I can't remember what movie he had done, but he did. He was in an interview, and somebody mentioned a movie, and he was so thrilled that the interviewer mentioned it because he said nobody ever brings that movie up to me, and it's my favorite movie that I've ever done. And I think I've probably alluded to this in other contexts, but I think about that. I think the first time I was ever turned on to that was by Anthony Burgess or Anthony Burgess, the author of *A Clockwork Orange*. And there's an introduction that he wrote to uh, his book called A Clockwork Orange Re-Sucked. And you can probably just find it online somewhere. But he talks about how, in his mind, Clockwork Orange is not only not his best book, it's, it's not great. Like, he thinks he's written other books that are much better that nobody seems to pay attention to. Um, I think Stephen King probably feels this way, too. I mean, at, at least in the interviews I've seen, he always seems to think that his best book is Salem's Lot, or at least it's a book that he comes back to over and over again, that you know, it's canonical. Obviously a lot of people have read it. It's been made into a movie and all that sort of stuff. But at least for me also, it's not the book that comes to mind. Like I think a lot of people think the shining or especially it, which is, I think a little, (sighs) you know, I don't know. I think those movies are not good. Uh, Actually, I don't think any of them are. I mean, the original TV series, I mean, people have a certain romanticism for it. Obviously it was very formative for me too. That scene with the sewer is, is iconic obviously, but it's not a good movie like you don't watch the series and go oh this is a very good film and and for the, you know the new movies were just very bad as well Stephen King is just very hard to do i think uh there could be a way in which Stephen King is like Shakespeare where maybe you're better off just kind of taking the idea and like running in your own direction with it because for some reason Stephen King just doesn't seem to translate very well in fact the 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 best Stephen King movies are the ones that aren't horror like Shawshank Redemption which it's kind of a bit of a pub quiz trivia that it's based on a Stephen King book uh, or a uh, Stephen King short story, but it is. Or "Stand by Me" is based on a, a short story from the same collection. Or "Green Mile," a lot of people don't know "Green Mile" is based on a Stephen King book. <clears throat> um, but where was I going with this? I was talking about "Leave the World Behind." Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really, I mean. On the one hand, I feel the need to talk about it, and I want to talk about the things that interest me about this movie, so that's kind of what gets talked about. But I, you know... So if I spoiled it for you, I'm sorry, but I still think you should watch it. I think it's a great movie that apparently people are not enjoying very much. But uh, I think it just goes to show you that sometimes people don't know a good thing when they see it. The uh, Maybe a, a good counterexample to that, and it looks like the only thing we're going to talk about, <laughs> the only thing we're going to talk about is movies. Um, so I hope that's okay. But um, the, I, I guess a counterpart to that would be, and this is my contrarianism, when a lot of people like something, I don't want to watch it. Like I think the the best example of that for me is like The Strokes. Like when The Strokes came out, I like didn't like them because they were very trendy and they kind of had like that affected kind of old sound, right? Like the the music was engineered in such a way that it sounded like it was from a different po- time period. And I thought I thought, I don't know, I just thought it was very gimmicky. And then you flash forward like 10 years later, and I went back and listened to their music. And there was a period where like their first three records, uh, maybe their first two, I could be confusing. Maybe the three comes from Kings of Leon. But the Strokes' like first one or two records to me were fucking perfect. And I just had those things on repeat for like at least a year or something like that. But that's one of those things that I realized, oh, maybe other people were onto something and I came to it late just because I'm a you know contrarian or something like that. I had that with a movie recently, which is All Quiet on the Western Front which is I saw it on Netflix and I knew it was, I think it won like Academy Awards or something like that, but it was, you know, it was, it it looked very beautiful. And um, it's the type of movie that I should have wanted to see, but I think by virtue of the fact that it was getting celebrated, I was like, eh, I don't want to watch that crap. But also it was like, I think part of it too, which is, I, spoiler alert, I ended up watching it recently and absolutely loved it, but I was like, how many more war movies do we need to see, right? Like, it was clearly a movie about, like, you know, trench warfare and World War One and everybody's dirty, and everybody dies, and isn't it awful? And you go, yeah, what, didn't we kind of, didn't we kind of, like, wasn't Saving Private Ryan, like, the final frontier of this kind of filmmaking, where we sort of, in a very, like, you know, the, the handheld camera, and, like, blood and dirt splattering on the camera, we kind of you know, demonstrate for people what war is actually like, that it's not the, I don't know, maybe Pearl Harbor. Like, what's a, I don't know. You you know the type of war. Black Hawk Down maybe is not the best example of what I'm talking about. But the kind of celebratory war, Braveheart kind of, you know, once more into the breach kind of battle. It's really just like bloody and dirty and uh, disgusting and uh, insane when you actually think about it, what war actually is. I guess I had sort of assumed that Saving Private Ryan was like the final frontier of that. But All Quiet on the Western Front is, you know, wow. As I'm saying it, I go, is it the best war movie of all time? I don't know. Maybe in a certain way. I think I'm hard-pressed. I mean, even more than Saving Private Ryan, it's just insane to me that you watch that movie and you actually, in a new way and in a conscious raising kind of way, it kind of reminds you how horrible war is. And the fact that people actually lived it and that this is the type of thing that actually happens in the world that people live through or don't. I mean, in a way, actually, that's what the movie does very well. It not only is kind of bewildering in its presentation of, oh, people actually live this experience, but it does a phenomenal job of not just, I mean, I think a lot of war movies do the kind of mass casualty kind of like when you watch Saving Private Ryan in that opening sequence, the thing that just kind of you know drives the point home of how horrible war is is just the mass casualty, the indiscriminate mass casualty that's happening as the machine guns are just kind of raining down on these waves of people who are just running into them. You know, and it's just by virtue of the fact by but the pure luck of the draw who doesn't die sort of breaks into the ranks and is able to infiltrate you know the trenches or whatever that's going on, but it's it's really the kind of mass casualty that is kind of selling how brutal the war is, and of course there's mass casualty and all quite on the Western Front, but the thing that it does very well is it it sort of how do I how do I word this is the level of I don't know how to word this except to say it's it's the kind of level of specificity that it imparts about the mass casualty yes. The sum is bad, but it almost kind of does like a war and peace type of thing now that I think about it, which is it shows the tragedy is not the, the mass casualty. The tragedy is the sum of individual tragedies that are happening inside of this, which is obviously a movie can't tell you the story of every single person who dies, but it gives you enough detail and shows individual deaths in enough detail that what it really communicates to you is the tragic loss of this individual. And then when we zoom, zoom out, you know the collective sort of individual tragedies amount to this kind of huge tragedy. Like, for example, <clears throat> there's just this moment where the protagonist like kills someone, stabs them a couple times with a knife, but by virtue of the fact that they need to hide are kind of forced to stay in close quarters with this person as they're dying. And so they have to kind of witness this person's death. And it does, a, and, and also, they like, you know, it, it's just this brutal scene where he like tries to keep the, like, has this wave of remorse. Now, and instead of just like killing someone and running off, he has to sit and like see this unfold. And it's this horrible moment where this, the, the person who kills him has to sort of face the fact that they've actually taken a human life. And it's their incredulousness of so the fact that, like, oh my God, like I killed someone. And also, the look on this person's face of like, oh my God, this is how I'm dying? Like this in, It's just an absolutely tragic scene. And, um, and, and yeah, and for some reason, I'd have to th- maybe watch it again or think about it more, but the movie just does an incredible job of just really demonstrating that each life loss is its own kind of, I don't know, holocaust was the word that came to mind. But I, all I'm trying to say is, is that each loss is profound and deep, and it's it's and and the the other thing the movie tries to do too which i think i, I don't know anything about german history <clears throat> it was just bizarre to me that as i was watching it you're watching world, a movie about world war 1 and at first you're like how are the you know is there a way in which i'm kind of primed not to be sympathetic to the germans like um you know i know i have my own kind of american western bias here but it's like you know, I'm not sure that they were the good guys in World War One either. Like, I, I sort of always frame the Germans as like the villains of World War One and World War II. So I think, how am I going to watch this movie kind of sympathetically? And I don't know if it was a historical fact or if this is just the way it was—a mo- movie made for a German audience, more or less. But it was just weird that the the movie kind of hinges on this kind of like uh, armistice that they're trying to reach between the French and the Germans in in the wake of these mass casualties. The Germans are kind of in a position where they need to make a treaty with the French. And uh, the it's it's just bizarre that the French are kind of portrayed as villains in those conversations, and the French are kind of like, or I'm sorry, and the Germans at least who are present in that conversation are portrayed as like trying to act out of mercy and and you know sort of stop the mass casualties that are happening on their side. Um, but just you know the, the kind of you know, there's a scene with the signing of the treaty where you realize. It's just insane that we live in a world that these types of bureaucratic actions translate to actual human suffering in the world and the extent to which our politicians do or do not seem to understand that. And it's actually interesting because the moment in the movie the world, Leave the World Behind where I was saying it was kind of disingenuous was really an, actually a full expression of what I just said which is leave the world behind as you're watching it. You're watching the kind of structures of life unfold, and it begins with things like Wi-Fi and the internet. But what that really, I mean, it, you could do it as a simple thought experiment, but you're also thinking it as you're watching the movie, which is you realize that the, the order that we think exists in the world is actually a fabrication, you know? And so Julia Roberts has this kind of cathartic moment where she expresses, but it's simultaneously explaining to the audience the point of the movie, which is we all live with this a abo- or it's kind of delusional... Uh, this abiding delusion that someone is in control. And as long as we all maintain that delusion, things seem to operate. But the minute that the, the scaffolding of the world kind of disintegrates, we realize that nobody was ever in control and that it's actually a miracle that anything happens at all. And so when I sort of graph that onto All Quiet on the Western Front, it's just bizarre that you think these completely arbitrary Bureaucratic, ritualized things like signing a piece of paper translate into like lives lost, or that you know, with the flick of a pen, a bureaucrat far removed from the fighting sends orders down the pipe pipeline, where a general says, "All right, we're going to battle," and then all of a sudden, thousands of German young men leave the trenches and you know start. marching across the battlefield that are met with like French machine guns. And you think, God, it's insane that the world works that way, you know? And it's that idea. Like, I was just obeying orders, this ephemeral, non-tangible thing that we pay deference to, that we invest with so much meaning that you know, I mean, there's something too in that moment too, where, and I, I, I'm not sure. This is kind of ephemeral, but that moment where someone's dying, where they've been stabbed, and now they're choking on their own blood, looking up at the sky, and they're thinking, "This is what I'm dying. Like, what am I dying for? This is it. This is the end of my life. Over what?" And that that's played out a thousand ways in the movie. Um, the ending, especially, is absolutely fucking tragic. But um. Yeah. Puppets on a string, man. That's just what we are, dude. We're all puppets on a string, man. We got to break that wheel. Break the wheel of that landlord class that's ruling us, dudes. Anyway. Yeah. So what's the takeaway? I don't know. I've watched a lot of good movies recently. I feel very lucky, actually. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know what to say except uh, watch, watch Tenant. Uh, prepare to be frustrated, but watch Tenant. Watch Leave the World Behind, which is great. Watch All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm trying to think. We have a couple minutes here. Is there anything else I can recommend? I will say I watched this in... Well, did I talk about that movie Manodrome? I think I mentioned it briefly, but it's with Jesse Eisenberg, and it's kind of a... I don't know if I can think of another kind of movie that is... Um, um, I don't know, kind of incel-related. And it's not that Jesse Eisenberg is an incel. In fact, a lot of the movie hinges on the fact that his girlfriend is pregnant with his baby. But it does kind of touch on that. It's not a great movie. I would kind of recommend that. But uh, why did I bring that up? I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore. <clears throat> Well, maybe we can cut things a little bit short today. We went a little long last time, and so, you know, I'm a little grateful that uh, I'm actually getting to this earlier in the day. Uh, I mean, it's still dark right now, but it's earlier in the day than I normally get to this, so I'm not in crunch mode. And uh, where are we in time? I'm right on the cusp of finals week, although I really don't have my first finals until Wednesday. Actually, everything gets, most things get knocked out by Wednesday at midnight. On Wednesday, I have my political science final at eight in the morning. And then I have a huge break, which is going to be a nightmare. I guess I'll just sort of maybe take a nap at the library or something. But then I have a final. And uh, I have a class, on, a class on Confucianism in the afternoon. And then actually, I'm going to be meeting up with a friend for dinner, which is great. I have a buddy. It You know, it's kind of nice. As like an old dude who's just hanging out with a bunch of young people, there's actually still a couple like young people who I've kind of connected with. And one of them is I have a, a friend named Brian who, uh, we've had a lot of classes together and we're just kind of nice acquaintances. And actually when I was in Taiwan, he happened to be there at the same time. So we ended up getting, uh, you know, Romian, getting uh, beef noodles there. And actually we're going to get ramen this Wednesday too. So we didn't have any classes together this semester, but we've kind of stayed in touch. So we're both graduating. So it'll be nice to, to see them. And, um, and that's basically, oh, and then I have to turn in a paper by midnight that night as well, which is already written. So, yeah, really just got to finish my uh, conclusion to my thesis. And actually, I have decided, <laughs> even if it'll, it, I, I should record it and just sort of post it, not because you'll listen to it and not because it's very good. But um, yeah, I just feel confident that having a recording of that or something can probably be repurposed for something in the future. Um, and also, I don't know, maybe you would like to hear it. Um, I think the problem is uh, I'm sort of anticipating like stumbling over. Words and stuff and sounding like an idiot as I read it. Basically, what I'm saying is, don't expect like audiobook production, where it's actually interesting. I've watched like people who do like voiceover work in their homes, and it's actually, you know, before you know, you think you know the the sort of typical movie trailer voice guy. You know, they always say like in a world, that type of guy. I did see a kind of a special on that person, the sort of the sort of is progenitor the right word, the progenitor of that. And he was like the first person who by virtue of his success like had built like a voiceover studio in his home. So he had like a sound booth and the nice mic and all that sort of stuff, which was like unheard of in like the 90s when he was doing that stuff. But he was so successful, he could like build that into his house. It would be the equivalent of like Bon Jovi or something having a recording studio in his house. You're like, what the fuck? But now recording materials are so cheap that anybody can like be an aspiring voiceover actor. And so people buy these like ISO booths and they like have these nice mics and they kind of do their voiceover book or their audiobook readings. But I remember I saw a video of one guy who did this for a living, and he would just kind of talk about the technology that he used. And I think I actually only stumbled on this because I was looking at like a for a preamp, which I happen to have and don't fucking use anymore. Um but um uh, yeah, maybe you've noticed a uh, um uh, deprecation in the sound quality of the audio. I don't know. But um It's just too complicated. But the point is, is that I would watch him do his voiceover work, and he would do like these audiobook recordings, and he had a clicker in his hand, which I thought was very interesting. You know, the type of clicker that I don't know what they would use used to use it for, but like I feel like it's it's like the exact same clicker that like nuns would have, where they would like click and people would like sit or stand or something like that. But he would just kind of hold it by the mic, and every time he made a mistake, he would make a click, so that there would be like a sharp peak in the audio waveform, so that he could just kind of go back and pick up where he had make mistakes and stuff like that. So anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about that except to say don't expect that. I'll stumble over my words a lot and there'll be a lot of mistakes. But uh, yeah, And, and I don't know. We'll probably have to do it in a couple installments here. But I will do that at some point. I will read my thesis to you. And you could either see how smart your boy is or what a colossal blowhard and a waste of time his investment in his education has been. So those are things to look forward to or not. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this survey of films that I've been watching recently. And I've I've seen some other movies as well. I guess we're just not going to talk about them. Uh, But maybe I'll have some new ones for you next time we connect. Otherwise, wish me well on my finals. And I hope you're doing well in your own life also. And uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. And ciao for now.